Avenue. Um, these are strange times, aren't they, that we're living through? Uh, yeah, really weird. And in all the weirdness, it may have easily escaped some of our attention that Easter's coming. We are very quickly approaching what would have been the Easter holidays. Um, I guess they're going to look very different for a lot of us now. But in the run-up to Easter, we as a church wanted to uh, think about what was happening there at the cross, what our Saviour was doing for us. So for the next few weeks, uh, leading up to Easter and the few weeks after Easter, we're going to begin a series today uh, looking at the sayings of Jesus at the cross. We won't cover all of them, and we're not going to go through them chronologically, but we're hoping and praying that this series is going to really help focus our minds on the meaning of Easter, as well as applying it to the strange situations and times that we're living in at the moment. So we're going to begin with our first reading now, um, and then we'll have the sermon after that. Luke chapter 23, verses 32 to 38. The two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the Skull, there they crucified him along with the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. The people stood watching and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, he saved others. Let him save himself if he's Christ the God, the chosen one. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar. And they said, if you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was a written notice above him which read, this is the King of the Jews. On September the 6th, 2018, Amber Geiger, uh, an off-duty police officer in Dallas, Texas, made a horrible mistake. She went home to what she thought was her own apartment, entered it, but actually she walked into the apartment of a boy called Botham Jean. She mistook him for a burglar, thinking he was in her apartment, and she shot and killed him. Last October, she was found guilty of his murder, and she was sentenced to 10 years in prison. And Botham Jean's brother, Brant, gave the victim impact testimony and said these words. If you truly are sorry, I can speak for myself, I forgive you. And I know if you go to God and ask him, he will forgive you. A few sentences later, he said, I don't even want you to go to jail. I want the best for you, because I know that's exactly what both of them would want you to do. And the best would be to give your life to Christ. Extraordinary words, but they were followed up by something even more extraordinary, because he then asked the court if he could give his brother's killer a hug. Can you imagine what it took for him to do that. It's one thing being able to say to this woman, I forgive you, but wanting to hug her as to show that forgiveness, that would be extraordinary, wouldn't it? But the court allowed it. And Brandt did indeed give Amber Geiger a huge, heartfelt, warm embrace. And the picture in the video was spread around the world because it was so extraordinary, so remarkable. What an unbelievable thing to be able to do. The video, uh, along with the Gospel Coalition article, there'll be a link for that uh, in the comments section below. But it was an incredibly powerful moment, and I think it went so global because forgiveness, particularly about something so personal, is really surprising. 
I mean, it doesn't come naturally to us, does it? And more often than not, the bigger the wrong we feel we've been uh, hurt with, the harder it is to forgive. Moments like this make the news because when they happen, they're so rare. The poet Alexander Pope was right when he wrote, to err is human, to forgive divine. But here in Luke 23, we're faced with an even more shocking scene in an American courtroom. The perfect son of God, the man who'd spent the last three years selflessly giving of himself to the people around him, healing them, healing the sick, the blind, the lame, the one who'd spent time and energy caring for these people and the people who the rest of the culture would have completely rejected. The one who fed 5,000 people with just a small picnic. The one who just a few days beforehand had ridden into Jerusalem on a donkey with a crowd of people around him praising him in adoration. This is the one we see in Luke 23. Falsely arrested, wrongly convicted and sentenced to death by crucifixion. When we enter the story today, Jesus is already so weak from his beating and his torture so far that he's been unable to carry his cross to his final destination and someone else has been forced to carry it for him. And then they arrive at this place that Luke tells us is called the skull or Golgotha, um, Calvary it's often known as. It's called this because um, the mountain shapes around there just look quite skull-like in appearance. And there Luke tells us they crucified him along with the other criminals with him who've been sentenced to death. Now Luke doesn't give us lots of physical details about the crucifixion. We're not going to spend time thinking about that today because his original readers would have been really familiar with crucifixions. They weren't a rare event. They were pretty common. They were a standard way of executing criminals in Roman times. Instead, Luke focuses on those things that would have been surprising compared to the countless other crucifixions people would have seen. And what he particularly focuses our attention on in verse 34 is what Jesus says. There are seven of these so-called sayings of the Saviour from the cross recorded across the four Gospels. And we're going to spend the next few weeks and then run up to Easter and beyond looking at some of them together as a church family. But, but we need to be clear, people talking during a crucifixion wasn't uncommon. Criminals would often shout and scream, swearing at the pain or abusing those who were killing them. But what's noticeable about the things Jesus says is just how they reflect who he is and what he came to do. Verse 34 particularly shows the deep heart of what Jesus was doing there on the cross. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. These words seem to have been spoken at the very time the soldiers were nailing him to the cross. At the very moment the nails pierced his skin, Father, forgive them. As the abuse and the torment of the crowd around him begins to rise in volume, Father, forgive them. As the faces of his executioners are just inches from his own, hammering him into place, as the cross was lifted up and dropped into its final place, Father, forgive them. It's extraordinary, isn't it? Even more extraordinary than the brother of Botham Jean. This is the perfect son of God as he was being killed by those people he loved, praying for their forgiveness. 
Now, there's been a fair amount of discussion about who this them Jesus prays for is referring to. So is it the soldiers, particularly nailing him to the cross that he's praying for? Well, yeah, definitely them. Um, but they were only following orders. They probably knew very little about who it was they were killing, just doing what they had to do. But the Bible makes it clear that ignorance doesn't excuse someone. No, not knowing how wrong what you're doing is, isn't an excuse. So yes, at the very least, Jesus was praying for their forgiveness. But the fact that the religious rulers are mentioned almost immediately afterwards in verse 35 adds another angle to this prayer for forgiveness. These are the exact men who just had Jesus arrested, who tried him completely unfairly without even following their own legal guidelines, who forced a local Roman ruler to have him offered to be executed, and then who whipped up the crowd against him to seal his fate. And the way Luke writes this, surely even these men were included in Jesus's prayer for forgiveness. They knew what they were doing, though, or at least they thought they knew what they were doing. They even thought they were right in doing what they were doing. But they had no real idea. And they needed the father's forgiveness. And even if Jesus really was only praying for those direct people in contact with him there and then, it would still give us hope 2000 or so years later. See, by praying for the priests and soldiers, the Jews and the Gentiles, Jesus shows the heart of God and the mercy of God. Jesus's words show his entire purpose as he died on the cross. See, if Jesus was willing for the father to forgive the very men who murdered him, then which one of us today is beyond his reach and beyond his mercy? Surely anyone who comes to Jesus and begs for forgiveness will be given it. See, when Jesus's enemies cry, crucify, Jesus cries, forgive. And boy, do we need forgiveness. How is your lockdown gone? Are you enjoying it? I suspect for some, it's been quite a pleasant change of pace. A good, if slightly curtailed and hindered opportunity to stop, relax, spend time with the family, catch up on some TV, music, books, films, whatever. But I also suspect for some of us, this lockdown, all the inactivity may have forced us to come face to face with bits of ourselves that we really do not like. Bits we're usually able to distract ourselves from. Maybe in the last week or so, you've acted in ways and just thought, that's why am I acting like this? This isn't me. When the truth is, this is exactly who you are. Moments of pressure like this don't reveal fresh parts of us. They show who we really are beneath the veneer of busyness and niceness that we're usually able to maintain. See, self-isolation is going to expose a lot of our sins, those way we refuse and struggle to live wholeheartedly for God. How's that been for you? Perhaps you found yourself to be a lot more selfish with the way things are done in your house than you ever realised you were. So therefore, maybe you're more snappy, less able to share the space and the resources at your home. Perhaps the frustration of all these restrictions has left you a lot more grumpy and angry than you really knew you were. How have you responded to those conflicts with the people you're living with at this time? Perhaps all of this has exposed the truth between that, uh, beneath that bright and breezy impression we like to give other people of ourselves. Or perhaps the loneliness and the distancing aspect of it all 
has maybe led us to find refuge in behaviours we're ashamed of. Daydreaming about what life could have been like if only we'd rejected God's call on our lives years ago and lived how we'd wanted, our situation in this lockdown would be very different. Or resenting the amazing provision that God has given us of the friends, family, children and people in living with us at the moment, wishing instead we had something easier to cope with. Perhaps instead we're finding ourselves getting drunk to pass the time and entertain ourselves when we know the Bible's clear command is for Christians to not get drunk. Maybe we've gone down paths of drugs or alcohol to fill these holes. Perhaps we've found all this spare time has led us to websites and behaviours online that if anyone else in this church knew about, we would be utterly ashamed to look them in the eyes. Or perhaps we've just ignored God altogether, either by forgetting that he's still sovereignly reigning behind all this chaos or by just refusing to think about him at all. You hear loads of Christians over the years saying, oh, I'll read more Bible and more books about God when I have more time. And now we've got the time. We find that we weren't telling the truth then. And we realise that the problem was never the amount of time we had. Perhaps some of us have realised how much we don't like being told what to do. Even when faced with life and death for us or people around us. The limitations to not leave the house, to not see other people... Well, they don't apply to me, surely. No, I can go and do that thing I want to or see those people that I want, even though the government, and I didn't vote for them, have told me not to. Have you found yourself thinking that, breaking the curfew? Or perhaps when being faced with things we found our identity in being taken away, whether that's sports clubs, socialising, haircuts, pampering, pubs, cinemas, whatever social community we were a part of, Perhaps we've realised that those, places, those were places we had our security in all along, without ever realising it. Perhaps the panic, frustration, hurt, anger, bitterness, escapism, maybe all that is revealing this to us clever, clearer than we ever really wanted. We need forgiveness, don't we? And these words of Jesus on the cross, Father, forgive them can be a wonderful comfort to us because as clearly as Jesus saw the beads of sweat on the faces of the soldiers who were nailing him to that cross, Jesus sees us, every aspect of us, just as clearly as he could hear the jeers of the crowd around him, mocking him, humiliating him, and the hammering of the nails as they pierced through his arms. Jesus hears everything we hear and think. All those horrible parts of us that we do not like to admit to each other. All those bits that have revealed themselves during this isolation. Jesus sees them crystal clearly. There isn't a thing that we do, say, think or feel that Jesus doesn't know and didn't know before he went to the cross to die for you. And yet what does he say? Father, forgive them. You see, it wasn't the nails that held Jesus on the cross. Not really. It was his love for us, his people. And the need that we all have to be forgiven. See, our sin, our failures should separate us from God entirely. It should condemn us to a life on earth earth without him. Helping us, guiding us, comforting us. And then even worse, an eternity afterwards separated from God forever except for his anger against our rejection of him. 
So as the nails go in, Jesus shows us his purpose in dying on the cross, the forgiveness of us, all of us. If we'll just come to him and ask him for forgiveness, he demonstrates how willing and keen he is to forgive us. Now, I don't want to be flippant here. We need to be clear about the cost that this forgiveness uh, had. There's always a cost to forgiveness, but nothing costs more than the death of Jesus in our place. One poet on his deathbed said, of course God will forgive me. That's his job. If that's how you feel today, then let the context of this prayer show you just what it costs God to be able to forgive you. Don't take it for granted. Don't take it lightly. Without Jesus's death in our place, there would be no forgiveness. So don't take God's forgiveness for granted and don't assume it's a given. It costs a lot and it's incredibly precious. But the wonderful thing is that, that it is complete. Because Jesus sees all of our muck and our filth and our sinfulness and he still dies to forgive us. He sees us far clearer than we see ourselves and he still cries out, Father, forgive them. If you're not somebody who knows what this forgiveness is all about, then we would love to be able to chat to you and spend some time explaining it to you. My email address is going to be in the section below this. Please get in touch. Let's talk about this over this time we've got in the coming weeks. There is nothing more important for us to talk about than how to be forgiven by God. And there is no better time to talk about it than right now. So let's do something about this if you're listening to this and watching this and long to know what forgiveness is. But if you are a Christian, if you know the truth of this forgiveness for yourself, there are a few other things we can take from Jesus's words here. Firstly, in this moment of extreme suffering and hurting, as his execution was about to begin, and with the dread of being punished in our places by his Father in heaven weighing heavily on his mind, what does Jesus do? He prays. He prays. See, however we've reacted to all of this coronavirus mayhem, have we prayed? Do we know that our loving Father in heaven is desperate for us to come to him and pray to him through it all, no matter what? No matter what sins and stumbles you might have fallen into during isolation, don't let any of that stop you coming to God in prayer. Don't let doubts and fears stop you coming to God in prayer. Let's use this time as a church that we have to grow in our depth and our intimacy in prayer with our Father in heaven. Wonderfully on the cross, Jesus shows us how he fulfills two aspects of the Old Testament imagery that was always pointing forward to him. So firstly, being killed as a sacrificial lamb, but then praying as our great high priest. Bishop J.C. Ryle said it like this. As soon as the blood of the great sacrifice began to flow, the great high priest began to intercede. And the wonderful truth is that he carries on doing that now in heaven before the Father for us. So we can pray to him at any point, about anything, no matter what. We should be doing that more during this time. I feel that myself. Let's spend more time praying on our own and with others the best we can. 
But secondly, if Jesus can pray for forgiveness for those people around him who were literally killing him, how are we reacting to those people who we're cooped up with currently? I read this week that one of the rules of living with people is that they're always going to be stood in front of the cupboard you want to get into. Living with other people can be frustrating, can't it? So how are we responding when we're wronged during all of this? Are we quick to forgive? Or are we holding on to wrongs and hurts more than we should? Colossians 3.13 tells us that we're to forgive in the same way that the Lord's forgiven us. And his forgiveness is complete. That's who we're called to emulate. Let's be a people who forgive the people we live with. Who are quick to ask for forgiveness when we make mistakes and are grumpy and are snappy and do wrong. But let's forgive each other well. But then thirdly and finally, are we trusting God through all these changing seasons of life? Are we trusting that he's still ruling and reigning despite all of this mayhem we're living through? You see, the cross wasn't an accident. It wasn't some mistake that God used for good. It was always God's plan. You see, when the rulers and the people around him are crying out, Ah, he saved others, let him save himself if he is God's Messiah, the chosen one. They don't realise that he could. He always could. He could have tied the Sanhedrin in knots during his trial if he'd wanted to. In Matthew's Gospel, we read that he could have called legions of angels to help fight for him if he needed it. But he doesn't. He remains silent. He could have got down from that cross at any moment if he'd wanted to. But he didn't. He remained where he was because he knew that his death as our substitute in our place, taking the punishment from God for all of our sins when he had none of his own, he knew that was the only way he could get the forgiveness that he prays for us. And the only way we could have any hope of life with God going forwards. And if God is able and willing to use something as horrific, in fact, to orchestrate something as horrific as the cross and the death of his own son to save sinners like you and me, well, we can trust him through every single up and down of our lives, can't we? Whether that's coronavirus or cancer. Because Jesus has conquered death. Death isn't the end. And we can trust in his presence through any trial or hurt because of the forgiveness that he's won for us. I've said this in sermons before, but for the Christian, this life's as bad as it gets. Ahead is only way better. If you're not yet forgiven, though, this life's as good as it gets. Ahead is only much, much worse. But if you trust him, even in the hurt and the fear and the worry about all of these things in our lives, we can turn to him and, hey, we can thank him for all of his provisions in this time and ask for help to trust him more. God loves to answer that prayer. So as he dies, as the nails pierce his skin, the perfect son of God prayed, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. The wonderful truth behind that is, at that exact moment, God the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit knew exactly what they were doing. They were saving us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this 
wonderful example of the heart of you there at the cross. Thank you that as you die, you show to us what you came to do, to forgive us. Lord, I ask that if there's anybody watching this who doesn't yet know you or know what it means to be forgiven by you, I pray that you would speak to them through your Holy Spirit now. May there be opportunity to find the Bible somewhere to read about you. I pray that in that they would see clearly the forgiveness that you offer. I pray that they'd have the courage to reach out and make contact with somebody at Avenue. I pray, Father, for your Holy Spirit to open their eyes and their hearts, to see their need of a saviour, but then to see the wonderful saviour we have who meets their need. And for those of us who do love you and know what this forgiveness means, Lord, we pray that you'd help us to pray more. I pray that you'd help us to live lives that are constantly praying, constantly thankful for your provision for us in our lives, no matter how confusing and hurting they may be. I pray that you would help us to trust you with every single bit of our lives. And I pray that you would use this opportunity and this time, this different season of our life, to make us love you more and make us more like your son, we ask. Thank you that you hear our prayers and we thank you that you forgive us completely when we ask for it. Uh, Lord, forgive us for those times that we refuse to ask it. And when we stay away from you, we're so stubborn. We thank you that you are not. Amen. Amen.